In 2020, company bosses have become aware of their employees' physical and mental health more than ever before. There are no quick solutions, though. Businesses must take a holistic approach with wellness options that make employees feel valued. Flexible Workspace Fora believes it has the answers. Find out more at wired.uk forward slash Fora Wellness. Coming up today, how a coronavirus vaccine will affect the return to work, what we learned from F1's biggest crash in recent history, and how will Santa deal with lockdown? Welcome to the Wired UK podcast, your essential weekly catch-up on all the big stories in tech, science, business and culture. I'm your host, Vicky Turk, and joining me this week are Amit Katwala. Hello. Natasha Bernal. Hello. And Matt Burgess. Hello. This was the week when the US recorded its biggest daily COVID death toll, reporting more than 2,670 deaths this Wednesday. It also has record numbers of people in hospital with the virus. This week, it was confirmed that business software giant Salesforce is buying work messaging platform Slack for $27.7 billion in a deal aimed at giving the two companies a better shot at competing against Microsoft. This was also the week when Singapore became the first country in the world to approve the sale of lab-grown meat. Chicken bites, which are grown in a briar reactor by US company Eat Just, passed a safety review in the country in a landmark moment for the meat or alt-meat industry. And finally, this week, London-based AI company DeepMind revealed its deep learning has made a huge progress in one of biology's biggest challenges, protein folding. Its AlphaFold system outperformed around 100 other teams in a protein folding challenge and has been called a solution to protein folding in general. Would you want to try the, the chicken bites, the lab-grown chicken nuggets? How much are they, though? <laughs> That's the question. That is it? the big question. I haven't <laughs> seen the price anywhere. Mm. Amit, would you eat them? Yes. I, yeah, I mean, I'd pretty much eat anything that's in a nugget form. So, yeah, yeah, it would be churlished. I mean, they probably have more chicken in them than the chicken nuggets that I normally eat. So, I would be it would be churlish for me to turn them down. I think it's possible. Yeah, it's a strange one, isn't it? Because I usually eat vegetarian, and these are still made of you know chicken cells, but they're lab grown, so there's no sort of animal death involved. So, I'm not really sure what to think about it. Do you have a? I mean, ethically, I guess there's no. If you're if you're if you're a vegetarian for ethical reasons, there's no reason that you should be opposed to them. Versus, say, being a, a vegetarian because you don't like the taste or whatever. But it's kind of an interesting question, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it is an interesting one. Let us know what you think. Uh, any vegetarians out there desperate to try lab-grown chicken, or will you uh, be steering well clear of it? Podcast at wired.co.uk for all your feedback. Interesting facts this week. Amit, what's your interesting fact? So this is might be a bit niche, but um, I learned that the skull of Phineas Gage is on display at a museum in Boston. Now, if you haven't heard of Phineas Gage, he is one of the most famous cases in neuroscience history. He was a railway worker whose personality changed drastically after an accident that drove a metal spike up through his eye socket, uh, destroying his left frontal lobe. Um, so when this happened, his, he changed from being this quite kind of sensible, organised man into this basically this loose cannon who just went out drinking every night and, and 
basically was really impulsive. Um, six years after he died, his body was exhumed and his damaged skull is on display at Harvard University's Anatomical Museum, along with the spike that caused the damage. Wow, quite a morbid fact. Although it feels like he was quite lucky to uh, to survive with just a personality change, having driven a metal spike through his eye socket. Yeah, I looked at some photos earlier and what I didn't realise was that the spike was like six foot long. There's like a side by side shot of the spike and his skull and it's like a massive, massive thing. So yeah, he was very, very lucky to survive. And um, the accident actually was one of the first cases which really helped us localise brain function. Before that, scientists didn't really know that different parts of the brain were responsible for different things. And, and this kind of frontal, inadvertent frontal lobotomy was one of the first cases that kind of helped demonstrate that the brain is functionally organised. Wow. I just looked it up uh, on Wikipedia and the first uh, image is a photo of a, I think it's, a, it's definitely a painting, um, with him holding the spike. Um, it's literally just, uh, yeah, somebody's painted him with uh, one eye closed and obviously not working and, and not really happening. And then, yeah, it just across his chest, he's holding this giant spike, which, I mean, I think probably was a little bit of a, a cruel painting, maybe, considering how much it changed his life. But there you go. <laughs> He, um, he he loved the spike. Like, he he carried the spike around with him everywhere he went for many years after. Genuinely, genuinely, like he he like took it with, with took it with him everywhere he went. And there was a rumor that he got buried with the spike, although I'm not sure if that's actually true or not. So maybe it is an accurate painting. The more you know, Matt Burgess. What have you got for us this week? Uh, this week, I learnt uh, that uh, the word camouflage comes from the French French verb, which means to make up for the stage. Um, and before it was used in the sort of uh, militaristic uh, situation, uh, setting, scenario, whatever the right word is, uh, pr- practitioners of camouflage were mostly artists who were known as camoufleurs. Uh, and the French army adopted camouflage uh, in 1915 and was the first sort of unit to do so. So what did camoufleurs do? That is beyond my uh, my knowledge of the, of what I learned this week. Um, but I'm going to say uh, they were involved in uh, the... Uh, I'm going to look it up for next week. <laughs> right. <laughs> Come back next week for part two of Matt Burgess's fascinating French fact. Natasha, now... I will tell our listeners, Natasha has a a great fact written on uh, the notes that we're using to record this podcast. All it says is, hamsters are brave. Natasha, are you going to expand on that for us? I will, I will. So I I found out this week something about hamsters, which is exactly that, that they are incredibly brave. So wild European hamsters, which are also known as hamsters of Alsace, are very, very cute. You should check them out. They're so cute. And they are absolutely vicious. They will fight you. They will attack animals that are far bigger than themselves, including horses and dogs. They will die rather than surrender. Canadian research has found that when wild hamsters smell the urine of one of their predators... They don't run away. They instead bristle up for a fight. France, the country, lost a battle against European hamsters in court, a different kind of battle, where it was ruled that it had done not enough to protect them from extinction. Sadly, despite pledging three million euros to save them, they were put on the endangered species just a few months ago. So, yeah, check out hamsters, because the original hamsters are badass. So, yeah, that was my fact of the week. Go hamsters. I've got a fact which is more like one of those strange observations that you realise you kind of knew your whole life but hadn't really thought about, which is that pineapples don't have seeds. So if you think about it, you never really come across a pineapple seed. Like, you know, say you're sitting down to eat a fruit salad. Um, but if they don't have seeds, what do they grow from? 
If you remember some of biology class, fruits generally de develop from a flower's ovary. I don't remember. If, I, I don't know if you remember drawing kind of cross sections of the sexual parts of a flower and that sort of thing. Um, but usually the ovary turns into ultimately the fruit that you eat, which usually contains seeds. A pineapple plant produces a bunch of flowers. These develop without seeds, which is something that can happen in nature. And they and ultimately all of the flowers ovaries actually fuse together to create one big fruit. So you end up with the one big pineapple rather than a bunch of smaller fruits. So how do you grow new ones? Well, you have to grow them vegetatively. So from cuttings or suckers, things like that, uh, they don't just kind of drop seeds to grow new plants. How do they reproduce in, in the wild then, as it were? Or is this something that we've kind of cultivated so much that it's... it's its origins have been lost. Yeah, it's one of those things that we have cultivated for so long and we've chosen uh, plants that, you know, don't have seeds and then bred them um, and ended up where the plant actually doesn't produce seeds or doesn't need to produce seeds. I think there may be some species in the wild that are still pollinated by hummingbirds and things and do have flowers with seeds and can grow that way. But the pineapple that we know um, is is not grown from seed. This is a similar thing with the bananas that we eat. They don't have seeds in um, because, again, cultivation has led to us opting for a fruit and developing a fruit for other reasons. You know, maybe it's a bigger fruit, a sweeter fruit. We're not so bothered about the seeds because we can cultivate them in other ways. The latest print issue of Wired UK is out this week. Our cover story is titled Change Everything and highlights the innovators working to build a better future. To identify the next generation of talent, we asked 32 leaders across the Wired world to name someone whose work they felt deserved greater attention. Pick up your copy to find out who got nominated by the likes of Alphabet CEO Sundar Pichai, human rights lawyer Amal Clooney and Oxford COVID vaccine developer Sarah Gilbert. It's a really fantastic list, right? Did anyone in particular stand out to you lot? Yeah, I really liked, um, I, I hope that I'm not butchering her name, but Shay Akiwowo, who's like, uh, she's this campaigner and director of this non-profit organisation called Glitch, which is doing something that I think should have been done from the very beginning of the internet, which is acting like the internet is a public forum like any other space and that women should feel safe using it. And she's just so fabulous. You can see her face um, is one of the main faces promoting the article. Uh, and it's, she's just fabulous. She's really great. Yeah, Shay's work is really fantastic. Um, I had the honour of interviewing her for the piece. And yeah, I think it's definitely uh, one to watch. What about you, Amit? Um, I thought Vince Cerf picked out Ginny Travers, who was the builder of the ARPANET gateway software. She's not someone that I'd heard of before, but she played a really, really pivotal role in the creation of the internet, which I, I guess you kind of hear about the kind of men behind it, but you don't hear so much about the women that, that played a really important role as well. So I thought that was really interesting. Our first main story this week we're at the end of 2020, starting to think about 2021. We've got a little bit of positive news on the COVID front coming through with all the sort of steps forward in terms of developing a vaccine. And we might be starting to think about actually meeting together in person in the office. We could do the podcast in the wired office, perhaps. Who knows? It seems like, you know, years ago that that was a thing. Um, but maybe things will return to normal or at least normal-ish. Natasha, you've been looking into what the vaccine news means for how we're going to work. 
Yeah, so you're right, Vicky. This week we've had some really exciting news about coronavirus vaccines. So the UK has become the first country in the world to approve the Pfizer-BioNTech coronavirus vaccine for widespread use. Vaccinations could start as early as next week for people in some high-priority groups with 800,000 doses, so 400,000 complete treatments, arriving in the UK in the first delivery. Now, this is the end of the tunnel for many people who have suffered in this year throughout the pandemic. And in the world of work, it may mean exactly what you were saying, Vicky, that we soon might be heading straight back to the office to the sounds and smells of our colleagues. Um, <laughs> this is obviously really great news, but what I've been looking into is, is exactly that. What, what does that mean? So the pandemic has largely proved that working from home is possible, in many cases, maybe even good for productivity. Do you think companies are going to urge workers, particularly white collar workers, people who maybe are able to do their jobs remotely, to trudge back to the office as soon as they can? Yeah, it's very true. The coronavirus crisis did prove that many people are able to work from home really effectively. Before the pandemic, companies were hugely against work from home, so there was really bad perception. In fact, most business leaders told the World Economic Forum in a 2019 survey that they expected home working to be negative for future productivity, even though there's plenty of research to demonstrate the absolute opposite. So they, they, they've been proven wrong, basically. But what is true is that throughout this crisis, companies have struggled to solve a myriad of problems that come from having everyone working remotely. Bosses are really worried because they can no longer see if you're working or how hard you're working. They struggle to know how to evaluate people's performances remotely and they worry about whether working from home will hamper people's creativity. There are mental health issues that are concerning employers too, so people are feeling isolated and lonely and it's getting worse um, over the period of time that, that we've seen the longer we work from home, the worse it gets. They're reporting high levels of stress, anxiety and depression, mental health issues. And finally, the pandemic has, has raised cultural issues too, such as people feeling left out of work conversations that would have happened in an open plan office and that are now taking place on private messaging channels or people who are afraid that they'll be overlooked for promotions and opportunities at work so it's a really big problem they haven't actually managed to solve yet so given all of that it's likely that companies will want workers to come back to the office if they can but the big question here is whether they're going to be set up with social distancing which means that people are not able to sit next to each other and have to wear masks when they walk around basically similar to what was happening over the summer when the first lockdown lifted or whether they'll go back to normal and wait for that so so they can come back to a situation that was exactly the same as before the coronavirus. So the way reopened offices operate in practice will in part depend on who gets the vaccine first, with current plans favouring a staggered approach where older people and those most medically vulnerable are ahead in the queue. On paper, that would mean that if offices want to open as normal, they could wait until their employees' age groups have been offered the vaccine and could theoretically open their doors looking exactly as they did before the pandemic. So as you, as you mentioned, um, there are sort of like, there are different priorities for p different people uh, getting the vaccine based on their risk and their age and, and various other factors that uh, sort of the World Health Organization has, has issued guidelines on, but countries are interpreting in their own ways. Um, does it mean if we are seeing um, people who are older to begin with getting getting vaccines will uh companies sort of encourage uh those that have be have had vaccinations to be back at work first will there be sort of like a staggering of like uh people within a certain age group get to return to the office to begin with and then sort of it it, it rolls out like that or what what's going to happen there 
Yeah, so it's, it's in theory, obviously, if you think about the way the plans have gone from the government, it looks like older age groups are going to get it earlier as well as people with sort of medical conditions that, that need it first, so the most vulnerable. And then it will go sort of slowly lo- closer and closer to the sort of the youngest people of the population. So it will, it will get staggered sort of opposite way first, I guess. So in, in theory, I mean, if, if you have an older um, working level of employees so if if most of your employees are over the age of 40 or 50 they might be vaccinated sooner and they might be able to come back to the office earlier uh, in theory but but no is the answer not really it it won't happen that way because there are really two specific reasons why that won't be the case if if older employees are allowed to return over younger employees age discrimination could be on the card so it'd be very easy for people whose age groups still haven't been offered the vaccine to say look it's really unfair for older people in my group to be able to return to the office and for me to not be given that opportunity simply because I haven't been given the vaccine first so legally right now the the UK also can't make the vaccine mandatory so there might it might be the case that in those age groups where you assume everyone's had the vaccine there might be people that haven't had it at all and have decided that they're that they're not going to so the uk government has said that it won't make a vaccine mandatory anyway so employers can never really assume that 100 percent of their employees will have taken the vaccine to go back to normal and those that do would be on really really thin ice so companies could face human rights challenges as well as potential liability if employees suffer side effects as a result of being forced to vaccinate if they feel like they're being pressured by employers who want to go back to normal and they say look we don't want to have social distancing we want to go back to exactly the way it was are you are you vaccinated and they feel like there there's pressure to do so that could be a big problem and also there's a second thing which is employees can refuse to tell their employers if they've had a vaccine at all it's not their obligation to disclose that information so the, Nicholas Southern the empl- uh, the employment lawyer who we spoke to for this piece said that companies that are demanding more bums on seats will likely be more led by commercial needs than you know anything else when deciding who to bring back to the office but there are other people who would be inclined to bring vaccinated employees back first so she says that companies should tread carefully because some employees will not want to be vaccinated for religious philosophical or health reasons and companies could face discrimination claims as a result of that but what we can't forget here is that it's also going to take time for people to feel safe coming to work again regardless of how many people are vaccinated and their safety remains the biggest hurdle to a full return to the office Office. So it was a LinkedIn study of UK C-level executives from mid-sized companies, which found two-fifths expect employees will be resistant to go back to the office when they reopen. Um, all these things have to be taken into consideration when planning a return to the office, which is likely in the springtime, if not sooner, uh, if the rollout of the vaccine goes well. But with a more flexible future on the horizon, the biggest challenge that companies will have beyond safety concerns is how they can create inclusive workspaces and cultures that work for remote workers, hybrid workers and office only workers. I think it's like it's like tempting to think of the vaccine as, as like it's going to be like this this single moment where we all kind of rush rush out into the streets and you know hug complete strangers like ve day but it's not going to be like that is it it's going to be like the kind of gradual slow process of everyone slowly getting their vaccine so i mean we're going to be in this weird hybrid situation for a while aren't we yeah, that's that's what it sounds like at the moment. It's going to be really hard to tell what employees will decide to do until we start to see more people going back to work in the UK, um, probably in spring 2021, as I said before, when the vaccine becomes a bit more widespread. But 
you're, you're right. I mean, there's not going to be a sort of breakthrough where it's like, all right, everyone's had the vaccine. We're all cured. There's no peril at all. Everyone, you know, lick the handles on the doors of your office. It's all safe again. <laughs> you know, it's, don't ever do that. That's not good. But, uh, but look, judging, going back to the seriousness, judging by the survey data coming out in, in recent months, this is kind of a break from what's happened before. Uh, p- people do enjoy working from home part-time. A lot of them do miss the office, but it's not because they miss being in a building or they miss the commute. It's because of their colleagues and the social aspects of work. Those are the kind of things that they miss the most. And, and so it, it's likely that companies will listen to that. And even if they do want people to come back because of the concerns about their productivity and about their creativity or their or their you know mindset, um, they still probably will factor in that feedback and offer a hybrid type workplace since working from home is proven to have no downside on productivity. So it's likely we're going to see people come back, you know, in sort of three days a week, two days a week, one day a week. Um, obviously, it's going to be difficult for employers to bridge the gap for people who literally don't want to come back to the office because then they might have to impose some rules. But it does appear that employers have accepted that the nine to five, Monday to Friday, is probably not going to come back anytime soon. However, if you judge by what was happening around the world this summer when most countries had ended their first wave of the virus and were relaxing all the lockdown measures, it is a bit of a different story. This is where you kind of see when people say, look, we're going to go, it's only a matter of time before we go back to normal. You can kind of see that evidence there. At that time, the UK was a little bit behind compared to some of the other countries in the world getting people back into the office. So there's more of a chance when you look at what they've done to see where the wind is blowing. So in an, in, in August, analysis by Morgan Stanley found only a third of UK white collar workers were commuting again compared to elsewhere in Europe, where two thirds had returned. Attitudes in the UK are a bit more cautious than the rest. So despite headlines at the time telling people to go back to the office for the sake of the economy, you know, get back to work, it's time, we can't work from home anymore. Most employers that reopened their offices told people that coming back was a a matter of their own personal decisions and that they would have to obey social distancing rules if they decided to come in. Um, So so that may be some of the reasons behind why so many people decided to just stay at home throughout the summer. They They weren't pushed to come back in, they didn't feel obligation, perhaps they didn't feel safe. But researchers found that our French counterparts mostly decided to head back in. So 83% of office staff were back over the summer, while three quarters of people had gone back to the office in Spain, Italy and Germany. Of course, this was all before all of those countries experienced a devastating second wave of COVID cases and subsequently reverted back to lockdown and home working for everyone but essential workers. But you you can kind of see that it it really, when, when you have employers who are more likely to tell you to come back in, people are going to respond to that and you can kind of see that that is the trajectory for a lot of other countries and it's likely that UK employers will be watching that closely when they start making their decisions for coming back there will always be a spectrum of people that work at companies some will want to work from home forever and never set foot in the office others will be gasping for like instant coffee and you know the idle office chatter and will want to go in every day again but based on the companies that we've spoken to a hybrid workforce is the clear compromise to all of this one of them which is this food startup called Flipdish 
I feel put it really, really well. They said employees will come into the office in line with government regulations when in-person collaboration and creativity is needed and people will work remotely when they prefer it. So it's that breaking from you just have to go into the office because that's what everyone does and actually going in with a purpose. They said that even when a vaccine is widespread, they don't see that plan changing. It's likely that the office will never be completely full again. It'll be interesting to see what the sort of long term legacy is of this, uh, you know, work from home period that we've all been uh, shoved into in in 2020 and see how that plays out eventually. Um, You know, will we eventually go back to so-called normal? Most people in the office will companies realize that they can uh, save money by having people work from home and that people actually want to work from home? I suppose one of the things is, you know, you're relying on employees to kind of um you're giving them more decision making power over their own day than perhaps we're used to yeah and I think that makes people a lot of people nervous um this was obviously an extraordinary circumstance but I think the productivity thing that I mentioned earlier this whole how do I evaluate someone's performance the the feeling of loss of control from a lot of bosses that's that's the most worrying thing I think from them saying okay I, I don't actually know how to tell if someone's working well or slacking off um, I don't know how to an- a- analyze someone's performance and decide who gets a promotion because I don't really have oversight of what they're doing anymore. And it's, it's quite a lot of it's a little bit of nonsense, really, because when we were in the office, you didn't necessarily have that oversight anyway. So it's the perception of it. The loss of that that they feel right now is, is really important. But it is interesting when you see all the tech that's come out um, throughout this, this pandemic. We've seen a lot of innovation, a lot of really interesting leaps forward. People were saying there's more innovation in the last few months than they would have been in the next decade had this hadn't happened. Um, but, but you think about all of these pitfalls and there hasn't really been a unified solution to it. So that's why I think like the risk of losing the nice things that we might have gained accidentally from this situation, the flexibility of being able to work from wherever we want, it might might end up just going away, um, but we'll see. We'll see. And on the subject of coronavirus vaccines, we'll be putting some of your questions about COVID vaccines to a vaccinologist in an upcoming video. So if you've got any burning queries you want answered, send us an email to the usual address, podcast at wired.co.uk. We'll include as many as we can and you'll be able to see the finished video on the Wired UK YouTube channel. Maybe you're wondering how they managed to make a COVID vaccine so quickly. Maybe you've got questions about side effects, about the global rollout, whatever it is. Let us know your questions and we'll get a real expert to answer those. Our next story this week, it was a tense race for anyone watching Formula One last weekend. If we've got any racing enthusiasts listening with what must have been the biggest crash in F1 history. Roman Grosjean, driving for Haas, crashed his car in the opening lap of the Bahrain Grand Prix in a truly horrific-looking incident. Somewhat miraculously, he walked away from the accident and no one was too seriously hurt. Amit, I know you watched it. It was quite terrifying, wasn't it? Yeah, it's very, very rare to see an F1 car actually burst into flames. And just looking at some of the the images of the aftermath of the crash, you you could see this kind of car embedded in the barrier and then like half of it was on the track and the driver was nowhere to be seen and there was just kind of wall of flames. But remind us what actually happened to cause the crash. How How did the car get into that situation to begin with? 
Yeah, we don't really know what caused the crash per se, but what we could clearly see, as you say, is that on that first lap of the Grand Prix, it was between the third and fourth corner. Grosjean sort of veered across the straight, clipped another car, and then headed straight towards the barrier at the side of the track. His car then struck the barrier at quite a sharp angle, and it was travelling at a speed of 221 kilometres an hour at the time. That's 137 miles per hour, so really high speed. And what appears to have happened then is that the barrier has somewhat split, and the car broke clean into two pieces, with the back half on the circuit side of the barrier, And the front half, with the driver still inside, wedged into the barrier itself. And then the car, as you say, burst into this sort of fireball of huge flames. Yeah, it really was, looking at the pictures and some of the footage afterwards, really was quite horrific and looks uh, so uh, miraculous that in many ways uh, the driver managed to survive in that. Um, We've obviously known that F1 is a a dangerous sport. Um, It involves cars going at very high speeds. It's got a history of uh, sort of like way back in the 50s and 60s and earlier than that, uh, sort of like deaths happened all the time in these types of like events. Um, But surely in 2020, this sort of thing is probably not supposed to happen you're right you know of course there is always some danger when you're racing cars at high speed but you definitely don't expect to see a crash that looks like that in modern f1 it did look like something more out of racing in the 70s and what we've been looking at is really you know what was it that allowed Grosjean to escape that accident because safety has moved on a lot in F1 and it's really a testament to a lot of the engineering and the safety improvements that have been made over the past years and decades that meant this crash could happen and there were no fatalities. I'm sure there'll be lots of investigations into exactly what happened but the remarkable thing is that Grosjean survived in around 30 seconds, he'd managed to get out of the flaming car, leap through the flames, over the barrier and to safety. He was taken to hospital with burns to his hands, but otherwise seemed quite OK. And it really speaks most loudly about those safety improvements that I think have been made in the sport. Yeah, this is really interesting when you think about the obsession that goes on in Formula One to create, you know, the fastest, most streamlined, most beautiful cars and it's when you think about the design process that goes into it how do you kind of factor in safety (laughs) and how do you design a car to be as safe as possible in that sort of scenario because it seems almost impossible to think that that would happen that there would be such minor injuries compared to the huge towering inferno of of horribleness that happened that day Yeah, so obviously there's loads of rules and regulations about how the cars are designed uh, based around driver safety. Uh, First of all, the fact that the car broke in two, although it looked rather dramatic, that is actually apparently quite normal. It's designed to break apart if it needs to, to protect the driver's safety cell, which is sort of the bit directly around the driver when they're sat down. Um, It's not supposed to ignite on fire, of course, uh, but improved fireproof Nomex clothing for the drivers will have helped with that. So uh, the suits that they wear, I think even the underwear that they wear, it's all designed to be really fireproof. And that particular aspect of F1 safety can be traced back to Nicky Lauda's crash in 1976, uh, which saw him suffer quite severe burns, as well as the deaths of several other drivers in the same decade. So fire safety is one thing that has really moved on in F1 over the past few decades. Perhaps the biggest thing that may have saved Grosjean, though, is the halo. This was introduced in F1 in 2018 and met with quite a lot of controversy at the time. 
Grosjean himself, actually, I think, wasn't the biggest fan when it was first introduced. So the halo is a titanium bar that goes over the cockpit in front of the driver. And the idea is to protect their head from damage. So example, for example, if a wheel comes careening towards them, it can bounce off the halo instead of, you know, hitting them directly in the head. And and people were, you know, there was some argument over it. Some people thought it would make the sport less exciting because it kind of uh, hides the driver's head from view. Some people, you know, questioned how much safer it would be. But in this case, it seems highly likely that the halo really took the brunt of the barrier and withstood that impact that otherwise would have gone onto Grosjean's helmet. So many are suggesting that it really saved his life. Pro racing driver Alex Brundle told us that a head restraint a head restraint called the hands device likely also played a role so this has been in f1 since 2003 and it's designed to prevent neck and back damage so again all about kind of taking that impact when you're you know in a crash at such high speed and there's obviously been a lot of sort of improvements over over the years and like if you look up the halo you can sort of quite uh visually see uh sort of how much of a sort of like uh shield it is essentially to for potential oncoming debris or anything like that ahead of drivers um do we know um and it's probably too early to tell is that was there a, still an element of luck in in this uh latest crash and jo, um gojon's um survival really i mean i would say that have to be really by all accounts it was you know, a very bad accident. And Grosjean did really well uh, to have the presence of mind to get out of the wreck so quickly. So former F1 driver John Watson uh, told us that after going through the barrier and finding yourself in a fireball, to have the presence of mind to be able to release yourself and clamber out of the chassis, which is burning very aggressively around you, is truly remarkable. So it could have been a very different story if he took a bit longer to, you know, get out of his, his harness and safety belts and everything. Or if he lost consciousness, um, you know, that could have lost some precious time. The medical team were also on site incredibly quickly. Uh, it's actually not unusual for instance to happen on the first lap in F1 because obviously all the cars are bunched together and there's lots of jostling p- for position. Um, although usually, of course, there's nothing nothing anywhere near as bad as this. And so the medical car actually follows the pack of cars around for a bit. Um, and because this happened early on in the lap, it was therefore sort of straight behind them and able to get straight on the scene where the medical staff, as well as marshals around the track, immediately started tackling the fire with fire extinguishers and, and, you know, managed to help Grosjean out of the wreck. So, I mean, F1's obviously got to do a little bit of of soul searching. Like whenever there's an incident like this, there's a period of kind of reflection where they try and figure out what happened. Uh, Obviously, it's, it's great that Grosjean was okay, but it's not a great sign that, you know, the crash happened in the first place in the way that it did. So, so what happens next, do you think? Yeah, I think that's the thing. It's almost like a bit of a double-edged story, right? It's a testament to how good the safety uh, the safety rules are and, um, you know, the engineering is in terms of driver safety, but it's also a quite sobering reminder of the risks. Um, and, you know, we don't expect to see accidents like that happen. So F1 and the FIA, which is motorsports governing body, will be analysing what happened to see if there's any lessons to be carried forward to make future races safer and avoid repeats of similar incidents. They'll likely be particularly interested, uh, people have told us, in why the barrier behaved the way it did and also how the fireball occurred. Uh, And what they learn will no doubt feed back into the future engineering of the cars and track. Um, You know, it does seem often it takes big incidents for uh, significant strides to be made and changes, you know, being able to analyse what's happened and, um, 
make changes based off the back of that is is hugely important. So I'm sure we'll be learning more as those investigations continue. Our third story this week, we've all been in isolation or social distancing for quite a long time. So what happens at Christmas? Santa, is he going to be stuck in his grotto in the North Pole, unable to visit anyone? Amit, please tell us that's not the case. Well, I mean, he is, if you think about it, he's, he's, he's at very high risk. We're all very familiar with the factors that put you at a greater risk of coronavirus. He's old. He's obese. He works in the cold environment. He has lots of contact with members of the public. He is, in many ways, the ultimate super spreader. Uh, so we're all very, very worried about Santa. I think one boy was so worried they actually wrote to Boris Johnson, the prime minister, to ask whether Santa would still be able to visit this Christmas. Uh, and it's not just, you know, the big man himself, but his uh, hundreds of subsidiaries. The UK has hundreds of professional Santas. And normally at this time of year, they would be all over the place, you know, doing Santa's grottos and shopping centres and garden centres, appearing at parties and so on. But this year, things have been very, very different. And being a Santa is no joke, right? You've got people growing out like beards all year round. They're like making sure that their, you know, bellies shake like a bowl full of jelly they're like you know lining up auditioning for the best santa jobs everyone wants to be the santa in harrods obviously because you get paid better i suppose but you know so, so what what what's happening if if you can't have a line of kids that you can put on your knee and cash in on those uh, christmas bucks what are they doing instead so it won't surprise you to hear that a lot of Santas have pivoted to Zoom. So we spoke to Scott Mitchell, who normally offers home visits and grotto experiences in person. He's been doing two Zoom calls a day since September, which, is, which seems strikes me as quite an early time for a visit to Santa's grotto, <laughs> but never mind. Uh, so he has a bespoke £2,000 Santa suit, which he normally wears. So he's been doing Zoom calls in that, although he says that he sometimes, like all of us, cheats and only puts the top half on. Um, so his customers That's can disturbing. choose from calls. <laughs> well, deeply, deeply disturbing. I'm, I'm assuming he's wearing normal trousers and not just no trousers rather than putting his <laughs> Santa trousers on. Um, so customers can choose from calls lasting between five and 15 minutes. Uh, prices start from £10 and parents can even answer a questionnaire about their child to kind of heighten the, the experience of this personalised Zoom call with Santa. Um, so over the course of that one week in September, Scott kind of transformed his home office with supplies. He's got a wall covered in Christmas pictures, electric lights. He's painted his chair with gold leaf to make it look like Santa's throne, I guess. I'm not sure why Santa would have a throne, but um, yeah, he's kind of decked out his living room to really kind of hammer home Christmas. And he's trying to do give kids the same experience they would get in person, but over Zoom. And uh, close your eyes if you do believe in Santa Claus and, and don't want your world destroyed. But um he's not the only one doing this is he no sh shockingly uh, so either way i see it is that there is obviously santa at the north pole and then he has kind of a network of subsidiaries to kind of delegate that he delegates to that's the only rational explanation i can come up with uh for why santa is like, like the arndale center in manchester or whatever like um yeah um, how could he be so, in so many places at well once? exactly yeah yeah <laughs> so it's, it's all legit though ricky don't don't worry about it too much um so yeah, there's even like an Uber style platform for kind of Santa's to find work on Zoom. Uh, so they've kind of gig economised it. So in October, an actor called James Bartlett launched a website called santascallingyou.co.uk. So um, it's basically, yeah, like you can, if you're a, a Santa, you can sign up for this website and get work through it, basically. So Bartlett has got a cast of 50 hand-selected festive actors who each choose how many Zoom calls they would like to do each day. So a lot of them kind of have previous experience of, you know, shopping centres and things like that. Um, 
They have to go through a rigorous two-hour training program, which teaches them how to change their Zoom username so that it shows up as Santa Claus, how to set an appropriately festive virtual background. Uh, Bartlett says the response to Santa's calling you has been overwhelming, and he sees his business outlasting lockdowns and social distancing, even when things go back to normal. Uh, and yeah, and he's as he said, he's not the only one. There's unexpected competition from Jimmy Wales, who was the founder of Wikipedia. He launched Santa HQ in November, which is a video call service that allows kids to connect with Mr. Claus. Um, now, a Zoom grotto isn't quite the same as, you know, doing it in person. The nature of Zoom kind of causes some inherent awkwardness. One Santa we spoke to says children tend to be a little bit more forthcoming over Zoom than they might be in person, which has led to some awkward moments. But, um, you know, others argue that it's actually a better experience than what you would get in a shopping centre, you know, where you, you're kind of in and out in a minute and you don't really get much time to interact with Santa. Whereas with Santa's calling you, the, the kid gets like eight to ten minutes with Santa during a £24.99 call. And, uh, yeah, as I said, if you think about it, it kind of makes more sense from a sort of, you know, uh, myth point of view that Santa would be available via Zoom from the North Pole and then run up to Christmas rather than being you know if you're a kid interrogating this it makes more sense that he'd be available over zoom he's obviously very busy why would he be at the shopping center it, it truly is the most uh commercial time of the year um but as with everything not all the santas are happy there's some tension there's some santa beef um yeah what what's going on with the sort of like the competition for this uh for this market yeah, some people think there's been a bit of a race to the bottom with, with all this stuff. So the man behind Celebrity Santa, who is arguably the UK's most well-connected Santa, he's the Santa that appears on This Morning, and he's the Santa Santa of choice for you know celebrities in the UK. He's been critical of some of the new digital Santas. He says if you go on their website, it's all stock images. You, know, you don't know what Santa's going to look like when he shows up. And he accuses some of the websites of offering what he calls Poundland Santa. He says people are just doing it to make a quick buck. It's an insult to children. Uh, so he himself has also done, he's also pivoted to Zoom. So from December the 1st, he's been doing a, a whopping three Zoom calls an hour for 12 hours a day. Um, he's also, I mean, and I think this kind of undercuts his it's an insult to children point a little bit. He's also selling kind of personalised pre-recorded videos, a little bit like those key rings you get at museums with your name on them. So uh He's he's currently in the process of recording 5,000 children's names, which will be slotted into a pre-recorded video, and you can order a video online for your kid using a drop-down menu to select their child's name. So, I mean, that's great if you've got a common or relatively common name. Those, uh, I bet there's no Amit Santa video for me to uh, enjoy on Christmas Eve, which is always a shame. So most of the Santas, it seems, have pivoted to video calls. Is anyone able to offer the real-life experience? Yeah, so uh, one thing I forgot to mention is that some Santas, the, the demographic obviously skews a bit older. So sadly, many older professional Santas aren't technically minded enough to work this year and have had to kind of take time off and hopefully they'll be back next year. Um, but yeah, there are some people still kind of doing the face-to-face -face, uh, grotto experience with a bit of social distancing. Um, Celebrity Santa was lamenting the fact that children spend a lot of time staring at screens and it's a shame that, you know, if they have to stare at screens to talk to Santa. So... Yeah, there are some, still some real-life grottos going on. Um, in America, the fraternal order of real bearded Santas uh, has argued that Santa Clauses should be first in line to get the coronavirus vaccine, um, which, I mean, to be fair, if you look at his risk factors, he probably is already pretty high up the list anyway. Um, and Scott Mitchell, one of the Santas we spoke to, is still kind of doing um, in-person grottos um, as well as the Zoom stuff. But he's taking extra safety precautions, so you kind of walk in one door 
another they walk past four meters away santa you can't sit on santa's knee because he's behind a perspex screen which is just like the most 2020 thing ever it's sort of tragic and funny at the same time um he's also offering kind of home and garden visits once a day he disinfects his car in his suit asks children to stay two meters away he wears a face shield plus he says santa kind of always wears gloves anyway so that's kind of got that hygiene aspect built in yeah, there are a few shopping centres, kind of uh, the Trafford Centre in Manchester is is employing similar measures to kind of get its own real life grotto underway and up and running. So there there, there are options if you want to go see Santa in, in real life and you don't want to sit through another Zoom call, you can make, make it work with appropriate measures in place for safety. But yeah, overall, this has been kind of a, a bit of an unusual Christmas season for the UK's professional Santas, but they aren't prepared to walk away from the children who look forward to meeting them. Uh, there's a nice quote from Celebrity Santa. He says, I don't think people realise what a huge responsibility being Santa is. I didn't realise until I started doing it. Well, I'm sure we're all glad that Santa is taking all of the appropriate precautions this year. Let us know if you're going to be seeing Santa virtually or in person. Uh, what precautions are there? Are you going to go and visit uh, Santa with a big bottle of hand sanitizer behind a perspex screen? Maybe you're going to do a Zoom call. What's the experience like? Perhaps you've got children. Are they asking awkward questions about why Santa's video call is uh, dropping? <laughs> Let us know. Podcast at wired.co.uk. And we've got some feedback from previous episodes of the podcast. Matt Burgess. Yeah, first up, we had a uh, quite a lovely email from Addy, uh, who is a year 10 student at a grammar school in Birmingham. They say that they recently uh, just discovered Wired in the US and in the UK and uh, just discovered uh, the amazing Wired UK podcast and have been listening to the last few episodes uh, and was meant to write in their responses to the previous two. But by the time they got around to it, they say it was too late. It's it's never too late. Um, and they sent Addy sent in a couple of thoughts on stories. Uh, we picked on picked out one of them here just to bring up which was uh, around covid at christmas uh, and Addie says that they thought maybe we could have a situation where everybody has to self-isolate for a few days after december the 27th and those with symptoms are tested uh, maybe the government could also increase testing uh, by then although they say that may be unlikely um, and yeah they wanted to know our thoughts on that um, so yeah we think that like this is obviously in relation to um, the government announcing sort of the uh, what people in the in uh, the UK and England are allowed to do over the Christmas period where sort of some of the uh, mixing rules for households will be relaxed between for five days uh, just just in the sort of like lead up to and after Christmas and yeah we and it's generally I think that there are a lot of people are doing lots of different things at the moment um, um, I, it would be a big question of whether uh, people would want to self-isolate after Christmas for a few days um, that's something that I think could be tricky for sort of like people to uh, either to be enforced or to people to sort of do after sort of having a little bit of freedom so it's one of these things that it is probably an option and some people will probably self-isolate and get tested after we know there are people getting tested before Christmas to see uh, to, to reduce the risk or to reduce the sort of uh, their knowledge of whether they've, they've got COVID or not before they go and visit family and relatives but I think that yeah the main thing is really to just take uh, a lot of precautions this year make sure that people are socially distancing where possible uh, and really just try to like evaluate your own risk based on sort of uh, who you're seeing and the, the sort of situations that you're putting yourselves in um, so yeah thank you for writing in Addy and um, thank you very much for yeah for becoming a new listener as well 
Thanks, Addy. And we got a message from Colin about our story on password sharing, uh, people sharing passwords with their loved ones uh, and this perhaps undermining their security. Uh, Colin said he enjoyed the discussion and the difference between design and when design meets reality. Understanding user behavior is so hard yet important, Colin says. And Colin says, actually, I wanted to raise a point on sharing accounts from a data privacy perspective. It's common for multiple users to share an account. It acts as a tool of obfuscation as well, stopping a company accurately building up a profile on you. That's a good point and one I hadn't really thought about. Uh, If multiple people are using an account, perhaps one of the uh, sort of weird side benefits there is that, you know, uh, people don't know exactly how to target advertising at you and things like that because you're sort of throwing them a bit of a curveball with different users. Uh, Colin says the cynic could argue that Netflix is aware of this, hence why they offer individual profiles. I mean, I think you pointed out that one of the advantages of that is that you don't get kind of strange recommendations that aren't really meant for you. So I suppose it depends whether you want really accurate recommendations or whether you maybe find that creepy and you want to sort of obfuscate your uh, personality a bit. Yeah, I think I'd rather have targeted recommendations that were actually for me. Well, I have a situation at the moment where I get recommendations for things that the other people using my account would like to watch, which I have absolutely no interest in. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks so much for writing in, Colin. Uh, If anyone listening would like to comment on any of the stories we've had this week or indeed previous weeks, let us know at podcast at wired.co.uk. It always makes our day to hear from you. Thanks a lot for listening. We'll be back again next week. Goodbye for now. Bye. Bye. Bye.